Welcome to Reproductive Left, produced by WERU in collaboration with Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center, a feminist, client-centered, sexual and reproductive health care provider in Bangor, Maine. I'm your host, Abby Stroh. On each show, we tackle a topic that impacts our sexual and reproductive health by inviting members of our community who work specifically on the subject. Reproductive Left covers a variety of issues, including, but certainly not limited to, reproductive rights, feminism, access to services, sexuality, gender, and relationships. To wrap up our show, we answer your sexual and reproductive health questions in our Ask Mabel segment. Be sure to stick around for it. Good afternoon, and thanks for listening to Reproductive Left. Today's interview is with Joanne Daphne, a former now National Organization for Women activist. For those of you unfamiliar with NOW, they are, and this is from their website, the grassroots arm of the women's movement. They are dedicated to a multi-issue and multi-strategy approach to women's rights. NOW is the largest organization of feminist activists in the United States, with hundreds of thousands of contributing members and more than 500 local and campus affiliates in all 50 states and the District of Columbia. For many years, Joanne served as the president of the Greater Bangor Branch. She has received many awards recognizing her important activism, including Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Achievement Award. She continues her activism today as a member of Mabel's Advocacy Committee. I could interview Joanne on so many topics, but today I'm talking with her about the Feminist Memoir Project, where she's recording the history of now and feminist activism in Maine. I hope you all enjoy it. Welcome to Reproductive Left, Joanne. Thank you for being on the show with me. Well, I'm a big fan of Reproductive Left, so thank you for having me. Oh, thank That's so nice to hear. Um... Can I have you start by just telling me or and our listeners a little bit about your feminist memoir project? Certainly. Um, I probably started it many decades ago, really, because I was sort of the unofficial uh, historian of Maine Now activities. And I've tried to write little updates and um, now histories and memoir things through the years. And eventually, um, it became more of an official project. So in two, and in 2004, uh, the Maine Now Board, the National Organization for Women in Maine, um, actually gave me some seed money so that I could continue the project and write a really more comprehensive history from the early 1970s up to modern day. <laughs> And I also got a little sidetracked at one point on doing video. So there's a, also a video part of the project. But I've, gone, I've come back to the writing part and have um, like a skeleton of all the years that may now existed and have some uh, much more in-depth stuff up through about the mid-80s so far. And it, does it focus mostly only on the National Organization for Women in Maine, or are there other organizations that um, fall into the project? In the um, early 70s, NOW was one of the few um, feminist organizations in Maine. And so the early part, 
focuses a lot on now and how it got started. Um, the first now chapter uh, started in late in 1971, and um, eventually a lot of other feminist groups and other progressive groups became partners and allies and coalition in coalition with Maine now and uh, so there's a lot about these other groups as well and I was at the beginning of a lot of these groups which was very exciting so um, groups on, on lesbian gay rights groups on domestic violence the early days of Spruce Run um, and also I have supplemented with um, a lot of newsletters from the other chapters and um, newsletters and even books about uh, other projects in Maine, like the Southern Maine Domestic Violence uh, Group has a, there's a whole book written about it called Through These Doors. And try to tie all these things together, but uh, also to show that the feminist movement flourished in many places and it wasn't as, you know, it's much bigger than its stereotype, in other words. Mm-hmm. That it had pieces in different movements. Yes. Um, so as you've been digging back, what have been some of the most shocking things? Do you, do you remember all of it? Are you, <laughs> is it bringing back memories that you for, had forgotten? Oh, lots of things that I had totally forgotten. <laughs> um, I tend to remember the more fun things, I guess. And mm. as you know, um, one of the groups that we created as sort of a fun group was called Fun, the Feminist Underground Network. And we did a few things that we couldn't really officially do as now. <laughs> um, not anything, you know, illegal, really, unless we did put on, we did turn stop signs into stop rape signs, for example. Ah. So that might have not been entirely appropriate. But anyway, <laughs> but, you know, just things like that that were fun, but we didn't do it in now's name. But a lot of us were now activists also. Um, some of the things that we did through the years, um, we ended up doing a lot of political work, which I think is probably well known. So, and by that I mean in the patriarchal political system in the electoral uh, area. So, we started out as lobbyists, but we realized fairly soon that just lobbying was not enough. So. We knew that we had to elect feminists, and in order to elect feminists, you have to find women and other, and male feminists who are willing to run. So, and then you have to have some training for that. So we tried to do a lot of workshops around that, and <laughs> we trained people to be candidates and uh, campaign managers. And so it all seems kind of uh, status quo now, but it, you know we had to really think through all these things through the years, and there were people who were opposed to. Uh, giving electoral politics any credence at all. Mm. I just thought that was, you know, we shouldn't even bother with that. We should just take to the streets, yeah. which was my favorite thing to do, taking to the streets. So um, in that regard, we did demonstrations and marches and um, starting in, I think, around 75, we did the first walkathon for the Equal Rights Amendment. And then the last one was a walk across the state for the Equal Rights Amendment. One of the main goals was to recognize every chapter in the state of Maine at that time and all the good work that they had done, not just for ERA, but for other things. And the ERA still technically could have passed, but we knew by then that it wasn't going to. Mm -hmm. So it was really a 
just a, we're still here, we're not going anywhere, we're strong, we have chapters. We started in Washington County, went to Bar Harbor, came back up to Bangor, went to Augusta, Farmington, Lewiston, Auburn, Portland. <laughs> um, so, uh, when and when we, by the time we got to Portland, um, and I should mention Deb Stoller from Farmington Chapter, made the whole trip, as did I. So we kind of planned it and did the whole thing. We had big events in Bangor, although you won't find it in the Bangor Daily News or in the television archives up here. But when we got to Portland, there was great coverage. All the TV stations were there and the newspaper. And there were hundreds of people cheering us <laughs> in the last little bit. You know, it was really a lot of fun. You just mentioned that you wouldn't see this in the Bangor's paper, and I think that's an important thing to mention, that if feminists aren't recording their own history, then um, the mainstream media is the one that records it. Is that part of why you decided to do this project? I think so. It probably drives a lot of activists crazy that the <laughs> things that they think are important aren't covered in the news a lot of times. As you go back through, and I know that you still in many ways are a very active um, feminist activist, how do you think the movement has changed? Probably the biggest thing that's changed is technology and how feminists reach each other. So it's much easier now, if you live in rural places or anywhere, to find out what's going on in your state, in your country, and even around the world in terms of feminist activism. Even in the early 70s, there was an international, there was, even before the 1970s, there were international efforts to have feminist connections around, around the globe. And um, there is feminist activism in every country. And so I think the difference now is that find each other easier. Mm. And the most satisfying part of being an activist is when you can reach out to people and find people who who can say, oh, thank goodness I'm not alone. And that makes it a lot easier when we have social media. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, have the issues stayed the same? The issues have all pretty much stayed the same, I would say. Um, I think they've, you know, there are permutations of issues and, and lots of new things as well, probably. But again, around the globe, I think the original issues all revolve around um, trying to bring women out of, first of all, get women into educational systems where they're not welcome and where they weren't welcome in the United States for many years, um, and also to get them out of situations of violence. So the first thing that happens wherever feminists organize is domestic violence shelters and rape crisis shelters or places or contacts, somewhere, somewhere to get help if you're um, in danger. Um, <clears throat> and then I think the next um, parts that come forward are reproductive rights and trying to find ways to keep women safe um, when they're making reproductive decisions and getting them the help that they need for whichever decisions they're making. Also, um, the f women are almost always in charge everywhere of children for some reason, uh, <laughs> whether, whether you consider that natural or, so, or social. Um, but uh, So we're often looking for quality childcare and ways to have the community be more involved in raising children instead of just individual women always expecting to do everything for the child. Um, 
So the issues are the same everywhere. And a lot of, uh, obviously, we do a lot of work in the United States around, around um, workplace issues. So sexual harassment in the workplace, you could pay for equal work. All those things are still ongoing. Of course, we aren't even close yet in, to getting equal pay. Um, but we do make progress along the way here and there. So I often get a little bit of tunnel vision around uh, feminism because I work in sexual and reproductive health. And right now it's very clear that we're moving backwards in regards to access to reproductive health services and especially around access to abortion. In general, do you see, do you feel like feminism is moving backwards or is it mostly just this certain aspect of the feminist philosophy? Well, I think the the Republicans who are running for president right now are an example of the backlash that came at the feminist movement, especially in the 80s and through the 90s. And beginning, usually people market with Ronald Reagan's election in 1980, and uh, there was a backlash within the Republican Party that threw out, there used to actually be feminists in the Republican Party. They were all sort of thrown out or disowned by the current batch of leaders, the so-called neocons. Um, and so there's, and because in 2011 they took over Congress basically, there's been a huge increase in the number of restrictive proposals that happen. And because even through the years earlier than that, they were given credence by the patriarchal media, they have, even though they say the craziest things about women's bodies and how the world exists, <laughs> they're very unscientific, very uh, Bible-oriented, very uh, patriarchy-oriented. In other words, they want men to be the head of things. On reproductive rights in particular, there were a couple of wedge issues that they tried to use in politics, and one of them was abortion. And they had more luck with that probably than any other issue. So they stuck with it, and they became more and more virulent about it. And they used various tactics through the years. Some of them work and some of them don't. So their first, the first few years, they tried to pass a constitutional amendment but feminists blocked it, but so they couldn't even get it out of Congress to send it to the people. So that was a victory for feminists. However, then they decided, they sort of switched gears. Well, they did a lot of tactics at the same time and picked the ones they liked the best, of course, or the ones that worked the best. So one of the ones that worked the best was to cut off funding to things. So the, in the first one, we're very familiar with the Hyde Amendment. Well, there were variations on that ending funding for women in the military, women in the Peace Corps, <laughs> women in, you know, in all phases of government were cut, the funding was cut off. They were very successful at that, very unfortunately, because all of that was funded in the beginning once the 1973 Roe decision came forth. Um, everybody thought, well, of course, it's part of health care, so right, naturally it'll be funded. Yeah, right. <laughs> So it was funded. and But when the Hyde Amendment passed, of course, then states could choose whether or not to fund. And in 1977, Maine chose to end funding, um, which we have to change all that, of course. Um, 
And of course, they're trying to defund Planned Parenthood now. They were always, it was never about just abortion. It was always about women's autonomy as a sexual human being. So they were always against um, birth control as well. If you are just tuning in, you are listening to Reproductive Left, produced in collaboration by WERU and Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center. Here with me today is Joanne Daphne, a former NOW, National Organization for Women, activist, and we're discussing her feminist memoir project, a written history of NOW's activism in Maine. Before we continue with the interview, I'm going to play a clip of Joanne reading a piece of her feminist memoir project. For U.S. feminists especially, these were exciting, electrifying years. In unity, we became fearless. We spoke out on issues from rape, incest, batterers of women, harassers of women, to workplace humiliations. From political and marital power imbalances to discrimination in sports and pretty much everything. We railed against consumer-driven beauty standards and the unhealthy diet culture. We talked about sex, sexualities, childcare, housework, displaced homemakers, and the rampant sexism in the other so-called progressive movements. We worked in party and electoral politics to change the faces in Augusta and D.C. We marched and demonstrated to take the nights, the days, and the U.S. Constitution for our own. As one of Maine Now's legislative activists, it was exciting to be part of getting the first of many AFDC budget increases. That's now called TANF. Um, We passed a law making gendered credit discrimination illegal in Maine. We lobbied for changes in the rape laws and for funding the Portland Rape Crisis Center, a center that existed due to the amazing work of now activists, Fran Harriman and Bobby St. Jean. Maine now pursued several court cases in these early years, including a case to keep a case to allow women to keep, or if she was already married, return to her maiden name. Also, now was plaintiff in a case to force Eastern Maine Medical Center in Bangor to allow mid-trimester abortions and to oppose first-trimester restrictions. Maine now feminists worked with schools to understand and promote compliance with Title IX. In 1974, Casper Weinberger, Secretary of Health, Education, Welfare announced proposed rules for Title IX, including the controversial requirement that schools must offer sports for girls if they offer them for boys. Feminists and women athletes were ecstatic. Maine feminists also promoted compliance with Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act for equal employment rights for women and minorities. Maine now set up pickets when Stowhouse fired all their waitresses and hired all waiters. We held workshops on internalized racism, homophobia, and sexism, and we marched and spoke out to end overt discrimination of all kinds. Maine now supported early lesbian and gay rights groups and efforts, including a 1973 conference on lesbian rights in central Maine and the right to hold a 1974 conference at UMO. By 1973, we also welcomed Presque Isle Now, Southern Aroostook Now, and Midcoast Now, to the many other chapters, and now members were involved in the production of a woman's radio show in Holton. That was Joanne Daphne reading from her feminist memoir project. Now back to the interview. So when you were my age, um, I think you were already well on your way into feminism, but um, do you think that you thought we'd be where we are today? I started my 
uh, activism before feminism, so I was somewhat familiar with electoral politics and that kind of stuff first, also as a union organizer, and did a few other things. Uh, and so I had a healthy skepticism about how much and how fast we could move forward, but I have to say that like a lot of people, I underestimated the backlash that would come at us. I had no idea <laughs> that so many feminist issues would be reacted against. Mm. So when we passed childcare legislation in 71, the Nixon administration called it the Sovietization of American children and vetoed it. Mm. We actually got it through Congress <laughs> when we tried to first tried to get money for domestic violence shelters, um, the right wing called it the destruction of the American family. Mm. Uh, when, you know, and that, so every, it seemed like every issue that we really cared about, all of a sudden we began to realize why it had never happened yet, why we had never made progress yet. And this, and these people had tons of money and they had tons of churches, so they had places they had money, they had resources that we could only dream about mm -hmm. that we still don't have. Um, so it, the fact that we have made as much project as progress as we have is um, quite uh, an accolade to the women's movement, I think. Um, we, we provided our own shelters, um, and we provided our own through volunteers and through people's homes and through a network of connections um, and you know we took our case over and over again to the legislature and to the Congress um, and we made progress there as well over the years but um, no other group in the United States or elsewhere that I know of um, has had to provide shelters in virtually every city in every state um, for the abuse of their members, for their abused members, <laughs> um, escape networks, underground networks. Um, the closest we come is all the groups that formed earlier in our history around black rights and African Americans and the Underground Railroad. Um, so it's uh, it's an, been an amazing journey to go from my younger years, where a lot of things were just naturally accepted that feminists just threw their hands up but we couldn't understand why other people couldn't see what we could see and now a lot of that a lot of that feminism is part of our culture so I'm happy that we've made that progress and that I think there's a, in a lot of ways I think there's no going back but mm. there are things that we still we're still just on the edge of uh, you know we haven't even begun to make enough progress on child care and social justice and the haves versus the have-nots and the, you know, there's just, there's so much left to do. Well, I'm definitely grateful for the feminist movement that came before me because I grew up thinking men and women are equal. I could do anything. And that's a pretty good feeling. I have a lot of entitlement because of that. You know, it also was shocking to find out the barriers that you face as a woman, but I'm really grateful to be to have been raised that way. Um, now you said we still have so far to go. 
And my question around that is how do you not burn out on this work? Because it's so important, but sometimes it's hard to see successes. Well, I think that's part of why the we did the feminist underground network stuff and just most of all of my activism has been wonderful. But my feminist activism in particular, and I'm not exactly sure why, has been filled with laughter and joy and celebrations and Every time we make some progress, we hold a celebration. <laughs> so it's wonderful to have a community, a worldwide community, really, um, that's so caring about so many issues and so determined to move us all forward. And I'm just, uh, I don't know, it's hard, it would be hard, harder for me to not have been an activist to have, or to be an activist in other movements because as, as, uh, important as they are, that joy just wasn't there for some reason, or not always there, or not there enough for me. <laughs> so I would have burned out there, I think. But because we could see su such progress, and because also I learned about the women, the feminists who came before me, who laid the groundwork for me to be who I was, that I was able to go to college even though my family was against it that I was able to dress in comfortable clothes uh, once I got out of high school, <laughs> where they still required me to wear dresses when I was there, <laughs> um, that I could play sports and I could expect to be welcomed on the playing fields, um, that I could, you know. So in other words, I, I could look around me and I could see feminists behind me, feminists ahead of me, and feminists beside me. Mm. Well... We are actually out of time, and that is the perfect way to end this interview. So thank you so much for being on Reproductive Luck with me today. It was my great pleasure. Listeners, stick around. We'll be right back with Ask Mabel. Welcome to Ask Mabel. Here with me, as always, is Terry Marley DeRosier, ready to answer your sexual and reproductive health questions. If you have a question you'd like answered, please email educate at mabelwadsworth.org. We only have time for one question today, which is about HPV. I'm really glad we're answering this question because there's so much confusion about HPV today. The question is, if you have HPV, can you ever get rid of it? Can you be cured of it? While there is no cure for HPV, the good news is that the infection does often clear on its own within one to two years. So HPV doesn't seem to always be active. However, we cannot say that you're cured. Um, the longer out or the more remote you are from your last clinical episode, meaning uh, where there were lesions detected, the longer out from that you are, the more likely it is that the virus is no longer active. Um, but there are over 100 strains or types of HPV, 30 of which are felt to be um, more likely the sexually transmitted strains of this virus. So your body um, 
may recognize the type of HPV that you have and develop antibodies so that when that virus were to be uh, trying to be active again, your immune system would recognize that and could probably, in a healthy immune system, in a normal person, keep that from um, recurring in at that episode. However, if you are with a new sexual partner who might have a different strain of HPV that you've never been exposed to before, then your body doesn't recognize that particular strain and you could be reinfected with a new strain of HPV. So it just brings us back to what we often say with any new partner, it's a good idea to protect yourself, have safe sex, whether that be with condoms or an oral dam. Thanks for listening to Reproductive Left, produced by WERU in collaboration with Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center. If you want to hear more, you can find us on SoundCloud and subscribe to Reproductive Left on iTunes or whichever podcast app you use. I'm Abby Strout. Tune in next time, the first Tuesday of the month at 4.30 p.m. right here on Community Radio WERU 89.9 Blue Hill. 99.9 Bangor or online at weru.org.